Our scripture passage this morning comes from 1 Corinthians 7, verses 17 to 24. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning. Once again, and welcome the Holy Trinity downtown. I have a question for us as we begin to reflect on this text, and the question is, is it possible for someone's wounds to reflect your worth or determine your worth, I should say? I want you to, I want you to weigh something uh, this morning. That is, what most influences how you view your identity? Is it your accomplishments in the world or is it the Alpha and the Omega, the one who has accomplished everything for you. That is, if you were to weigh your circumstances versus Christ's view of you, how would those two weigh out? Or to put it in the words of the text, your, your circumstances and your calling. There is a uh, classic book written by Viktor Frankl in 1959 called uh, Man's Search for Meaning. And in the book he argues that the human spirit is so tenacious that there are moments in which the human spirit can transcend the circumstances, though not always. One in 28 of his colleagues died in the German concentration camps. And he found that as he focused on the circumstances that he was in, he was given over to despair. But then he found a kind of way of embracing his suffering and trying to transform his suffering into a gift to transcend his pain and his hopelessness and to hold out hope for what might come afterwards. He, uh, at the end of his book, uh, Man's Search for Meaning, he cites, he begins talking about a new kind of uh, psychological perspective that he had developed called logotherapy, which has to do with uh, the idea of, of being able to embrace the suffering of the world 
in order to learn from it. And he gives the example of somebody named Jerry Long. And he says, Jerry Long is a living testimony to the defiant power of the human spirit. And he quotes a newspaper called the Texarkana Gazette, really popular paper in the Midwest right now. But he writes, uh, Jerry Long has been paralyzed from his neck down since a diving accident which rendered him a quadriplegic three years ago. He was 17 when the accident occurred. Today, Long can use his mouth, his mouth stick to type. And he attends two courses at a community college via a special telephone, and the intercom allows Long to both hear and participate in class discussions. He also occupies his time by reading, watching television, and writing. And then in a, a letter to uh, Victor Frankl, he wrote this, I view my life as being abundant with meaning and purpose. What an amazing statement. He says, the attitude that I adopted on that fateful day has become a personal credo for my life, which is, I broke my neck, but it didn't break my life. I'm currently enrolled in my first psychology course in college, and I believe my handicap will only enhance my ability to help others, and I know without suffering that the growth that I have achieved would have been impossible. And Long's point and Frank, Frankel's point is this, that we need not be determined by our circumstances. That there is something about the human spirit that has the ability to arrive, arise above the human circumstances. And very simply, in a way, the gospel of Jesus Christ, with a man upon a cross, <laughs> says that death is not determinative. That disease is not determinative, that despair is not determinative, that sin is not determinative, that if a man can rise from the dead, then all things are possible. So my very simple claim today is that calling triumphs circumstances, calling triumphs circumstances, or to put it in a different way, my claim is that the barrier-crossing, power-inverting love of Jesus means that there's no social status in the gospel. There's no hierarchy in Christianity. No one's above somebody else. All are slaves who have been set free. And my main challenge for you today is this. Live the life that God has called you to live. Don't try to live somebody else's life. My structure for today is this, that there's a principle outlined in verse 17, actually repeated three times. In verse 20 and then verses 23 to 24, which is lead your own life. God has an assignment for you, do your assignment. And then he illustrates that uh, principle, Paul does, with two examples, which seem very foreign to us. One is circumcision, which has to do in this context with religiosity. Don't try to advance your religiosity somehow with external marks. And the second one is slavery, which is very, is radical to us. And I will uh, unpack that a little bit with you. So um, live the life that God's called you to live. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for um, the 
power-inverting, barrier-crossing love of Jesus that takes our social status in the world and inverts it, breaks us free from the bondage of self-desire and puts us under the bondage of righteousness. Help us today to live more righteously for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So first of all, the principle, which is in verse 17, and maybe our team in the back will put the scripture on the, on the screen if they don't mind. Um, maybe they won't, or maybe they're using invisible. There we go. All right, let, here's, here's the principle. Only let each person live the life that the Lord has assigned to them. Pretty simple, right? God has called you to live a particular life that's different from everyone else. And Paul repeats it, the life that God's assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all of the churches. Now, if you were to read through chapter 7 of uh, 1 Corinthians and read into chapter 8, it's a little bit confusing like how this section gets in there at first, or at least it was to me on Monday and Tuesday. Wednesday, up until like 9 a.m. I'm teasing. Um, Because what Paul does last week is he talks about marriage, singleness, divorce, separation. But the easiest way to understand it is these are all stations of life, seasons of life, status of life, so to speak. And now he comes to a couple other social conditions of life. And what he's saying is that neither marriage nor singleness nor divorce nor separation nor circumcision, nor slavery, as radical as it seems, are determinative for who you are and for your identity. That this word that he uses of calling is so radical. So it's, it's <laughs> the idea that, you know, you get a phone call all the time and you just press silence, you know, spam risk phone call, you just... With silence. This idea is that somebody has come from another space, another world, and intervened in this world and said, you are mine. You follow me. That's what he means by calling. What Paul is saying is that what each of us have experienced, if you are in Jesus, is more unifying and more powerful and more transcendent than whatever circumstances you were raised in. If you, and not everyone has, but if you receive Christ, then your status and your situation and your station are fundamentally changed, transformed, repowered. That's why the Apostle Paul can say in chapter 3, verse 21, he says, don't boast in men. And then he says, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or all the world or life or death or the present or the future, they're all yours and you're Christ and Christ is God's. He's saying if you're in Christ, your status is elevated from a slave to a member of the kingdom, to a priest. Verse 23 says, you've been bought with a price, therefore do not become bondservants of men. See, we've reached a problem in our culture, many of us, where we allow the expectations of other people to determine how happy we are, how thankful we are. Maybe there are some who feel enslaved by uh, somebody else's opinion of you. And that person's gotten bigger than God has, in a sense. 
and you're unable to transcend the, the station that you're in, you feel shackled by your circumstances, as Paul is arguing that there's more something more powerful than the condition of your life. There's something more powerful than the circumstances of your life. It's the calling of Jesus on your life, and he's got a plan for you. Eight times in this passage, uh, Paul references that we have a calling in Christ. It's like we just uh, sang, your worth is not in what you own, it's not in your strength of flesh and bone. Your worth is not in skill or name or in win or, or loss, in pride or shame, but in the blood that flowed at the cross, at the cross. I rejoice in my Redeemer. My soul is satisfied in him alone. And Paul is raising for us, what's your satisfaction? Is your station of being single, or is it your station of being married, or is it your station of your work? Paul says, calling outweighs circumstances. You have to live the life assigned to you and the life that God has called you to. Just so you get a sense of this word calling and how rich it is in 1 Corinthians, I just, I'm going to turn back to, to uh, the first chapter where Paul says that he's called, verse 1, by the will of God to be an apostle. In other words, he says, God called me. <laughs> he was on his way to Damascus. God knocked him down with some light and a voice. He was blinded. God said, go tell people about, about their freedom. That doesn't mean your, your calling is the same as that. And then in verse 2, he says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints. In other words, Jesus has elicited a call in the world saying that he wants you to be part of his kingdom family and to follow him. That's this calling that breaks into each of our lives. And uh, in verse, chapter 1, verse 9, he says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son. There's a new family that this is just one tiny, this congregation, this people, it's one tiny little expression of that's a global family. And he said, he's, you're called into that. That transcends your circumstances. It transcends the country that you're from. It transcends the language that you speak. Verse 126, he's, he gives him like a little backhand uh, jab. A little, it's not a compliment. He says, he says, you consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you are wise. He basically said, like, you guys aren't very smart anyways, Right? Uh, not many of you are powerful. Not many of you are noble birth. He's saying it's not because you're a partner in a law firm that you got this invitation. It's not because of your parents. Not because you're the top of your medical class that you got some invitation. You're at the bottom of the medical class, in fact, and you still got invited. You have a horrible personality, and you still got called. <laughs> oh, that's what he's saying. He's like, you're not that classy. And you got welcomed in to a new class. So God's given you a calling. Make that determinative, not your circumstances determinative. Then he goes to these two examples. That was 17 to 20 now. I'm just going to look at verses 21. Sorry, 18 to 20 and then 21 to 24. Both of them have to do with your social setting. In other words, there were some who were in Corinth at this time. Who were, there was a little bit of competition happening in Corinth, okay? So some people are like, yeah, I'm, I'm with Paul. 
Paul's my guy. You know, other people are. I'm with Apollos. He's my guy. You know, that the idea like well, if I got this guy, then I'm kind of in this next class. But it, what it was doing is it, pro, it was producing division in the church because everyone's like, you know, I man, I follow Christian Park. That's great, right? That elevates your status, but it also creates a kind of division within the church. So circumcision in this text goes back to a promise that God gave to Abraham in Genesis 17. And the idea of circumcision there was that because God had come into the world to show his love to one particular people group, the Jews, ethnic Jews, in order to set them apart as an illustration of his love, he said, let me give them an outer mark on their bodies, which is the mark of circumcision. But it became... Again, very divisive because, in a sense, it's like if you have this mark, if you're part of the, the Jewish community, then you're in the in-group, and literally everybody else is in the out-group. The, the, uh, the Gentiles are called the goyim. They're, the kind of, they're called dogs, even, by, by the Jews. And Paul is basically saying, guys, you, have you lost your mind? Like, you think like a little nick down below? is going to determine your like righteousness before God. And he's saying there's a different mark. The wounds in the hands of Jesus which determine your worth and the blood which has flowed. We're going to sing in a minute, my debt is paid, it's paid in full by the precious blood that my Jesus spilled. If your debt has already been paid, he's saying, then like circumcision to get in the in-group doesn't really do anything for you. Verse 18, was anyone at the time of his calling already circumcised? That is, when Jesus entered into your life and you said, I will follow you, Jesus, if a person was circumcised, then stay there. Don't try to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Don't let him seek circumcision. And then this is a radical statement for the, Jew, the Jews of, of Paul's day. He says, for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. In other words, to get into the inner circle or be in the outer circle is not the issue. How can you more effectively follow who God is and do his commandments? If you're trying to climb some religious ladder or some hierarchy, it may actually distract you. Let your calling transcend your circumstances and let your calling lead you to a cause. And the cause here is fulfilling the commandments of Christ. Now this is really interesting because um, there are 615 commandments in, in the Torah, sorry, 613 commandments in the Torah that are called the mitzvot. And Jews believe then and some, some Jews today, religious Jews today, believe that you have to adhere to all of those uh, commandments. That's not what Paul is saying here. What Paul is speaking of here is a way of fulfilling the law of Christ, which is through love. So it's not, this isn't about, okay, find the 613 commandments in the Old Testament that you can't eat pork, that you can't eat, that you can't eat shellfish. Here's, here's a couple of words for us. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That's what he's saying. See. Let your calling make you other-centered. 
Verse uh, Galatians 5, that was Galatians 6, 2. Galatians 5, 13 says, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through the law serve one another. So what can happen is once you realize your freedom in Christ, you feel like, well, I'm just, I can do whatever I want to now because <laughs> he's just going to forgive me anyways. And that's how a lot of people, a lot of quote-unquote Christians live their lives. Like, hey, all my debt is paid. I can do whatever I want to. And Paul is saying, at least in Galatians 5, he's saying, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Rather, the whole law is fulfilled in one word, which is love your neighbor as yourself. Or, you know, when, when the Pharisees come to Jesus and say, what's the greatest commandment? He says, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, all your mind and all your strength, and to love your neighbor. The second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. And what he's saying is that we can get so focused on the circumstances that we're in that we forget to love our neighbor. We can get so discouraged by our station in life that we forget that somebody else needs the love of Jesus. That there's somebody else right around us who has a burden. That there are people around us who are caught in transgressions that you could restore gently, Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Or here's John 13, 34. And a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. For by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Let me reread that. Verse 35. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you vote for the right political party. If you... If the, the hem on your dress is the right length, some schools will say. If um, you hold to the right moral, con that's not what, what it says. That's not how people are to know your love. But in our culture today, it's very possible for people to view you as a non-Christian when they hear your political identity. Some years ago, philosopher and theologian Francis Schaeffer wrote these words, Christians have not always presented a pretty picture to the world. Too often they've failed to show the love, the beauty of love, the beauty of Christ, the holiness of God. And people have turned away. The world has turned away, he says. Throughout the centuries, people have displayed many different symbols intended to show that they are Christians. They've hung... They've worn uh, marks in the lapels of their coats. They've hung chang chains around their necks. I love this little phrase. I think this was written in like 1972 or something, and they've even had special haircuts, right? <laughs> but there's a much better mark, a universal mark, to last through all the ages to the church until Jesus comes back, and that is the mark of love. Which you can do if you have cancer. You can still love other people. Which you can do if you're a busy medical student. Even pastors can love other people. Maybe you're tired of trying to be in an in-group, and the calling means you're already in. Jesus made you in. He went out to bring you in. He came down to bring you up. He went into the ground to bring you out of the pit. 
Maybe you realize for the first time today that you're really lost and you've never had the experience of Jesus calling you. He's calling you to come to him. Maybe you feel too lazy to fulfill God's commandments. Maybe you need the Holy Spirit to drench you and to wash away your and my self-centeredness. Maybe you need someone to permanently change your Netflix password. I'm teasing, sorry. So Holy Trinity, let's live the calling of Christ. Let's not be about, it's not like somebody is better than another person. Every single person in here is valued by Jesus. Doesn't matter what your station is. On the cross, Jesus actually inverted our social status. He brought us from death to life. He brought us from outsider to insider. He brought us from slave to free. And the cross inverts our social status. Here's the third section, verses 21 to 24. So lead the life God's called you to live, which includes fulfilling his commandments, living in love. Now we have a little section, verses 21 to 24, where he basically says, and this is radical, he says, hey, even if you're a bondservant, don't be concerned about it. And this is one of the spots where it can feel like the Bible um, baptizes slavery. And I had a really long section on North American slavery that I cut out, but I'm just going to say a couple things about it. Okay. North American slavery was a kind of slavery that was, would have been hated by Jesus and the Apostle Paul, is forbidden by the Old Testament and the New Testament. You might think, well, that, I'm not a social justice warrior saying this, okay? In the book, I was, I was on a treadmill in the fall, I was reading a couple books on slavery, and I, I was listening to Exodus, and I hit this spot in Exodus, and I was like, my jaw dropped. I probably read it before, but basically what it says is that anyone who kidnaps another person, who steals somebody else, should receive the death penalty. And anyone who possesses someone who has been kidnapped and stolen should receive the death penalty. What happens sometimes is that when people feel... feel theologize about American slavery, they make it a good institution or something like that. When I read that, Deuteronomy 36, 12a, since I cut it out in my notes, I'm going from my memory, so um, that means that all of North American slavery would have been forbidden. There's another, pl there's another place in, in 1 T Timothy that speaks about our kind of slavery, the kind of slavery that was in North America, which was race-based, kidnapping-oriented slavery. In other words, all of the slaves that came over from Africa were kidnapped and brought here, and it was done based on the, mainly on the color of skin. And what Paul says in 1 Timothy, and I'm, I'm saying this at the moment as a parenthesis to speak into some of the noise that's in the world about what the Bible has to say about slavery. So one thing I'm saying is the Old Testament says that the kind of slavery that results from kidnapping would, would punish both the kidnapper and the possessor by death. The second thing is from 1 Timothy chapter 1, 
verse uh, 8, where Paul says, The law is good, and if anyone uses it lawfully, understand this. The law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners and for the unholy and profane, and for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those who practice homosexuality, liars, perjurers, but here he says the word enslavers, which is somebody who kidnaps somebody else. So from the New Testament and the Old Testament, North American slavery was forbidden. A couple other things really quick on North American slavery. There's a really good chapter in Thomas Sowell's book, which is called Race and Economics. The first chapter is on North American slavery. And I'm just going to tell you a couple things that he argues. He's a conservative economist, so it's interesting that he argues what he argues. But one thing he argues is that the, the wealth that came in the South was not um, sort of a byproduct of, of American, North American slavery, but the direct result of it. That it was a transference of um, wealth from one group of people to another group of people. Second thing he says is that um, one of the reasons why North American slavery is unique from other kinds of slavery in the world is that it was in a democracy. So most democracies don't practice slavery. But North American slavery, in order to continue North American slavery, had to dehumanize the slaves on the basis and color of their skin. In other words, the only way, and, and some people call it the great contradiction of our Constitution, the only way for um, racially based slavery to move forward was for people to argue that somehow blacks were subhuman. And that's what happened in, in our country. Um, a couple other things, that, and this is, what, this is what Thomas Sowell says. A couple other things very quickly. Race, uh, North American slavery was, had to be violent. Uh, the way that, the, way that uh, the cotton farm worked, so to speak, is you could have many, many people picking, uh, picking cotton and one or two um, slave masters that are watching them. But the only way for them to keep someone from running away was to be extraordinarily violent. So sometimes the picture is, oh, that guy's just totally depraved, and that's why he's violent. But in reality... It was rational, so to speak, because it was the only way to keep all of the slaves on the plantation was through extreme violence. So I'm, I'm wanting to make a little bit of a contrast at the moment between North American race-based slavery, which the New, New Testament and Old Testament would say is forbidden. There's a several kinds of Old Testament slavery and New Testament slavery. There are ways that you could become involuntarily a slave and voluntarily a slave. I'll do voluntarily first. If you had a lot of debt or you wanted to get out of poverty, you could indenture yourself to someone else and say, can I work until I get out of my debt? That's what medical students do. <laughs> That's what the military does. We joke about it. I'm joking about it right now, but it's actually those kinds of concepts are more similar to some of the voluntary slavery. That's why it's called a bond servant in this text. You were a bond servant where you indenture yourself because you have a very large debt or you want to get through school or something like that, okay? Then there's involuntary ways that you could become a slave. Those would be through uh, losing a war. Another one would be um, by a judicial decision. There's one more that I can't remember right now. But all that is to say is that 
slavery has been in, in almost every culture over time, except for more modern cultures. But North American race-based slavery was different than the other slavers. That's just all background on, on, on the word bond servant to give you a little perspective. So what's interesting is the same principle goes on here. He says, lead, if you're a slave, lead your life. If you're a bond servant, even lead your life. Which doesn't sound right to our ears, except then the next thing he says, actually though, if you can buy your freedom, go do it. But the point is this, even a slave can be a missionary for Jesus. Even a slave is created in the image of God, a bond slave. Even a slave, according to Viktor Frankl, can transcend their circumstances and think of higher thoughts. You think of the, some of the greatest music that has come into the Christian world has come through those who are beaten down in oppression. The great gospels. We were at blues, I was at Blues Fest last night and my wife leans over to me and says, the blues are kind of complainy, aren't they? There's a lot of complaining going on, right? Yeah, yeah, but, but why is that? Because of the hardship and the oppression, but even beautiful music can arise out of the hardest circumstances of life. So what Paul is saying is lift up your eyes off of your circumstances if you, can buy your, if, if you can buy your freedom, go for it. But don't let that keep you from serving the Lord. Like, trivia question, especially for Bible students who are here. Who is the first modern missionary from North America or from Europe? That's not a rhetorical question. If there are any Bible students here, let me know. So we'd probably say, does anybody have an idea? William Carey was one of the first uh, missionaries. Uh, Adoniram Judson from the United States. But there is a man whose name is George Leal that I would just want to tell you about really quickly. And his wife, his name is Hannah. And he was a black American slave who had been set free from slavery. And this is about two decades before any white missionaries went out. This guy is an Af African who began to love Jesus, learn the Bible, and he decided that he was going to sell himself into slavery so he could get overseas to be a missionary in Jamaica, George Leal. So in 1780, 10 years before William Carey set out, E.A. Holmes, his biographer, says, a man without formal education, he learned to read the Bible and became, he wanted to go to Jamaica. I mean, and you live in Chicago, who doesn't want to go to Jamaica, right? But he became a preacher of such effectiveness that in seven years in Jamaica, he had converted over 500 slaves to Christianity. Though he was born a Negro slave in Virginia in about 1750, his illustrious service as a patriot and a preacher served as a weighty influence for the in, in the abolition. So what's the point? The point is live the life God's called you to. Jesus was willing, like Hannah Leal and George Leal, to sort of enslave himself for us. The point is God can use anyone. There is no hierarchy, social hierarchy, in the Christian faith. Because we were all rebels that God has bought 
and set us free. Verse 22, likewise, he who is free when he is called is a bondservant of Christ. He like reverses it there. He says, even if you're free, you're, you're Jesus' slave. So it doesn't matter either way. Like if you're a slave, you're free because Jesus set you free. And if you're free, you're also a slave of Jesus Christ. Married, single, divorced, separated, slave, or circumcised, anybody can be used for the kingdom. So know your, know your assignment. Live out your assignment. I'm, just gonna, I'm gonna just make a couple quick applications. One is on contentment. All of us want different circumstances. Maybe what God wants for you is a different you in your circumstances. You don't have to change your circumstances to claim your calling and to find contentment. Secondly, uh, is that contentment comes not from changing your circumstances, but finding your cause. In other words, if you find something you believe in, a place to serve, a people to be a part of, that's where your contentment begins to come from. Not not because of a change of circumstances. Last thing here I'll say is value the station of others. Don't look down on people just because they're less successful than you or less social than you or less confident than you or less inspiring than you. Because Paul would say, we're not, you're not that impressive anyways. I'm teasing but that's essentially what Paul says. Remember Jerry Long's words, I view my life as being abundant with meaning and purpose. May you find your life abundant with meaning and purpose because Christ has called you to be part of his kingdom, part of his family. Jerry Long said, I broke my neck, but it didn't break my life. Even if your body is broken, your will doesn't need to be broken. Even if your life feels broken, your spirit does not need to be broken. In fact, part of the message of the New Testament is the way to wholeness is brokenness. That Jesus was broken for us in order to make us whole. Live the life that God's called you to because this curse of sin has no hold on you. And whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for lives that inspire us. I pray for those here, Lord, who feel pain and discouragement in the season they're in, the station they're in, the circumstances that they're in. Help this calling of being set free from the curse of sin. Set us free to serve you joyfully as one family, one kingdom. In Christ's name we pray, amen.